Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy to have you along again this week, and a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. To say this has been quite a week would be the understatement of the century. Everything just seems to be coming together at once. Uh, 2021 seems to be picking up where 2020 left off, whether it's COVID or our continued work around racial equity, and now we have the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, It just feels as if everything is increasing in intensity, and it feels as if humanity is being tested and pushed to the brink. Uh, I'll have a few things to say about what happened this past week in the United States, but in my opening segment, but wow, uh, I, I don't know what else to say other than that it has just been a trying time for, for all of us. I want to quickly remind you to subscribe to the podcast YouTube channel. Uh, just search Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube and you should find it. Full podcast episodes are there along with the video versions of the interviews. Those videos are usually posted a few weeks after the original podcast goes live. I think they can be great for PD sessions. You know, if you hear something in the interviews that you think would make for a good PD clip, then show that clip to stimulate some dialogue amongst your colleagues. As I said last week, I'm also hoping to add some other shorter, kind of single topic, quick hitter kind of videos uh, this year. So stay tuned for that. Your listening and subscribing to the podcast means a lot, and I really do appreciate it. If you feel up to spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would also appreciate that too. Just continuing to try to expand the listening audience. Today I'm excited because I've got my longtime friend and colleague Tom Hirk joining me today for the interview. He is a prolific author, a speaker, and also a fellow Canadian. So looking forward to our conversation about student behavior and school culture. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to address a topic I've heard a few times this week in separate Zoom meetings, uh, and that is the topic of grading, and specifically why it's so important that we be clear on whether we're using the term grading as a noun or grading as a verb. So we'll talk about that as well. So that's the plan for today. We've got a lot to get to, so let's get to it. We'll have my conversation with Tom here coming up shortly, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with some thoughts about the horrific events that took place in Washington, D.C. last Wednesday. Now, more to the point, one of the many thoughts I had as a result of what took place. Obviously, the attack on the U.S. Capitol was an emotionally jarring event, even for those outside of the United States. What happens in the United States often affects the world, and I'm not sure all Americans always understand that. Many do, of course. But instability in the United States creates instability in the world, especially when you have opposing political forces and opposing economic interests coming from Russia, China, and so many other countries that oppose true democracy. You better believe other non-democratic countries are going to pounce on the events of last Wednesday and use it to tell their citizens, see, that's the ugly side of democracy. You don't want that. Now, the very good news from last Wednesday is that the Congress got right back to business And that is definitely a positive sign that the institutions of democracy carry on, at least acutely, in the face of one of its darkest moments. Now, it's anyone's guess as to what the long-term impact will be. As one commentator said, I thought quite insightfully, quote, we're either watching the end of something or the beginning of something. I just don't know which it is right now, end quote. Anyway, I don't really want to get into the politics of it. It's not really my focus here. 
My focus here is to ask the question, how did we get here? Again, not politically. Look, I I know there's politics involved, of course, but my angle here is not so much about politics. It's hard to avoid politics these days because it seems like everything is politics. If a once a century pandemic can become political, then it's a telltale sign that everything is political. But again, how did we get here? And by here, I mean, how did we become so brazen? Now, my feeling is that a big part of it has come as a result of the continuous dehumanization of people, especially those we don't know, or those in positions of power, or what we perceive to be advantage. Now, the internet allows us to be more connected than ever before, and yet we seem more disconnected than we've ever been. While we seem closer, it feels like we've never been further apart. The merging of what's real and what is fake or manufactured has never been more difficult to discern. We now, in our attempts to persuade people, reach for hyperbolic labels like radical, like the radical left or the radical right, to describe folks we don't agree with. Now, if I don't know you, even better, because I won't feel so bad when I take shots at you. You see, this happens in so many aspects of life. You know, some consequential and some not so consequential. Let's start with the not so consequential, professional sports. Do you ever notice that those who are responsible for running or coaching your favorite sports team are basically morons, idiots, or completely incompetent? The vitriol with which people talk about their sports teams might seem passionate or it might seem harmless, but if you pay close attention to the language, it's as if those coaches and general managers aren't even human. Those criticizing would be the same people who would ask for an autograph if they met that coach or general manager in real life. Now, I'm not saying that general managers or coaches in professional sports should not be criticized when it's deserving, but the way we go about it is different. Video games have many of us believing that athletes in real life should be as automatic as their favorite video game, right? As as if athletes don't have families, don't have struggles, don't have emotions, don't have things going on. Athletes aren't allowed to be human anymore. They're just supposed to shut up and dribble, right? What about politics? This is where it happens a lot. It seems to many that politicians are more avatars than human beings. They don't know and don't care that those politicians are mothers, fathers, grandparents, sisters, brothers, uncles, aunts, etc. Yes, politicians, like any profession, should be held accountable. But today, more than ever, the accountability is paired with dehumanizing rhetoric. Look at any critique of any government's plan for schools during COVID, and you will inevitably hear, quote, Well, it's obvious they don't care about teachers or students. They just want to send us to die. End quote. Now, hyperbole aside, which I talked about in episode 12, do people honestly believe that politicians just want to send their own grandchildren or their own children or their own brothers or sisters or parents who are teachers into a death sentence? You don't think this hits home to them too? Now, it's easier not to think about that, right? It's just easier to tweet, they all want us to die, and then watch your likes and retweets blow up as you slowly drift off to sleep. The use of dehumanizing labels allows people to separate their humanity from the cold-blooded, unfeeling, diabolical avatars or images we see on TV. We use words like the government, the system, or even on a smaller scale, 
administrators or teachers in an inhumane way, and it starts to desensitize us to the truth about those labels, which is that those labels are actually people. People who have families and loved ones. Just because someone disagrees with you doesn't necessarily mean they don't care. Isn't that the pinnacle of self-indulgence? You don't see it my way, so you must be a monster. I mean, what if, in fact, your position is wrong? Oh, we never think of that, do we? Because I can't be wrong because I thought it. Maybe another uh, don't at me about the heightened level of self-indulgence in society is in order sometime in the future. (laughs) We'll get back to that. Criticism of others? Of course, when it's deserved. But dehumanizing? That has to stop. It has to. We need to force ourselves out of that rut. It's time to rehumanize each other. Now on Thursday, just one day after the events in Washington, and while I was trying to sort out all of the emotions I was having about what took place, I got a phone call from one of my best friends. Now Darcy and I have been friends since 1999. We've worked together in two schools directly. We worked in the same school district for 12 years. He was a principal when I worked at the district level. I've known his children their whole lives since they were born. Our families are super tight. You get the picture. He's one of my closest friends. I know what you're thinking. Wow, Tom, a phone call from one of your best friends. Super weird. (laughs) I get it. But two things stood out for me in that moment. One, we don't normally call. Like most of you, we spend the vast majority of our time texting. And two, it was random. Now, I know we've all done the scheduled sort of Zoom happy hours and the connections during the pandemic, but there I was working away when my phone randomly rings and it's a call from my buddy Darcy. Now, even the way I answered it, it was as if I won a contest, right? It's like, wow, an actual phone call. To what do I owe the honor? Now, we just had one of our normal conversations, mostly about sports. We're both huge sports fans, and we have, I think, these interesting discussions about hot topics in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and so on. And long before I started this podcast, Darcy and I used to hypothesize about having our own sports podcast, right? We're not sure anyone would listen because who cares what two educators have to say about the NFL, but hey, why not? Right? I mean, who knows? Maybe sometime in the future, there'll be another podcast uh, in the library. Now, listen, I was ripe for it, given where my head was post-Wednesday. But what hit me after we hung up was how impactful that phone call was. The human connection versus the flippant, often cryptic way that we sort of text. Now, listen, I'm not advocating that it be 1975 again. But what I am saying is that in this screen-driven virtual reality... The humanization of our human connections is critical. Now Friday. One of the downsides of being self-employed and working from home is that you can always be working. But the upside is that on any given Friday, or any other day for that matter, you can choose to drop everything and go skiing. So that's exactly what my son and I did. My son is still on winter break from university, so he was off too. Now I love skiing. I'm a good skier. I'm not great but I would say I'm probably above average. My son, on the other hand, is exceptional. I, I haven't been able to ski with him since he was 10, and he's now 20. His ability, thanks to being in a freestyle program for years when he was you know, single digits, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, or however he was, has him now at a place where his skills are insane. Honestly, I know him as, I know him as dad, but 
I have the video evidence to back this up. He is a great skier. And I think the only reason he humors me and skis with me is because he knows I'll pay for lunch. <laughs> in the spirit of humanizing, as I was thinking on Friday, in the wake of Wednesday, phone call from Darcy on Thursday, Friday, we go skiing. So in the spirit of humanizing, I decided to post a picture of the two of us on Twitter on Saturday morning. Now, I use Twitter as my professional platform, and I rarely post anything personal on there. However, after Wednesday and Thursday, it felt like a great opportunity to humanize myself. Now, before you think I'm comparing myself to famous people or politicians, I'm not, okay? So let's get that right. However, on a much smaller scale, I have had people come at me on social media for things I post, you know, especially about assessment and grading. Usually, the more intense the attack, the more anonymous the account. Like fake names and cartoon avatars are the ones who, ironically, show the most keyboard courage. Now, my epiphany is that when a personal platform is used exclusively for professional purposes, you can inadvertently dehumanize yourself. And others can dehumanize you as well. So I made a conscious decision to post a picture of my son and I to kind of rehumanize my Twitter feed. And again, I get no one really cares about, you know, a picture of my son and I skiing. But that doesn't matter. Because I do. I care about it. We need to rehumanize one another. I don't know how else to say it. But it's time we started remembering. And look, many of you probably don't need this reminder. But we need to start remembering that there's a human being on the other end of your comment. Yes, disagree with ideas, policies, decisions. I get it. That's all fair game. But try not to make it personal. Don't act like the person on the other end is a callous Terminator type robot whose whole purpose is to destroy your existence. I know it's easier to believe that. And we often want to believe that. But it's rarely true. If we can vilify the other side in a political debate, then there really isn't a choice, is there? We have to push back against that. We have to stop falling for that. The dehumanization of one another is, at the risk of sounding hyperbolic and not taking my own advice, the dehumanization of one another is going to be our downfall as a society. The people who disagree with you love their families as much as you do. The politicians whom you oppose hurt when they lose a parent or a grandparent as much as you do. They want their children to thrive and be happy as much as you do. The professional athlete who you simultaneously loathe and admire wants justice and peace in the world as much as you do. Again, I have no issue with criticizing the ideas or people's actions, but that's where it has to stop. If we keep dehumanizing humans, then I'm not sure what we will have left. I know that going forward, I'm going to audit my own online presence to ensure that I'm rehumanizing people so that I can be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Here today for the interview is my longtime friend, my longtime colleague and fellow Canadian, well, actually fellow BCer. Uh, Tom Herrick. Really excited to have Tom on the podcast uh, this week. Tom is an author. He's a speaker. Uh, he's a consultant who has authored or co-authored 17 books, soon to be 18. Tom, I don't know how you do it. It's ridiculous. Uh, he is a keynote presenter. He's an in-demand workshop presenter. He's been an educator for 38 years and has held almost every role that you can imagine. He's been a teacher, school-based administrator, district-level leader, 
executive director, you name it, Tom's probably served in that role at some point in his career. But if you know Tom as well as I do, you will quickly come to know that the role Tom cherishes the most is the one of grandpa, because it is obvious to all who know Tom how proud he is of his grandchildren. So uh, there are so many areas that we could explore with Tom today, um, and no doubt will be a reason why Tom returns to the podcast. But today we're going to focus on uh, student behavior and school culture. So again, Tom, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. It's a, it's a real treat to be here with you. And, uh, you know, I think we have an agreement that we won't share some of those stories that we do know about each other. They might not be fit for podcast content. Uh, I appreciate you providing all that background. Uh, sometimes it reminds you that maybe it's just because I can't hold a job or maybe it's the ADHD kicking in. I'm not quite sure, but uh, I, I, it's a real treat and a real pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And I think it is one of those things where you just wear out your welcome sooner and sooner as, as your career moves on, right? Uh, and yes, uh, we'll we'll save those uh, other stories for the director's cut uh, that may or may not make an appearance on the podcast. All right, so let's um, let's dig into uh, school culture, student behavior. Uh, let, let's start with the biggest idea, and the biggest idea is that you know many teachers and principals. Uh, and, and to be clear, I, I do obviously don't hold this position, but many teachers and principals might say, look, uh, behavior is the job of families and parents. My job is to teach. Uh, students should know how to behave when, when, and, and when they don't, it's up to the families or the parents uh, to, and caregivers to fix that. So talk first about why is it so important that schools be intentional and purposeful and proactive about student behavior? Yeah, you know, and, and I understand that that mentality. And, and I think part of it's driven by because we have such limited time and I need to have all that time on the academic targets, right? That gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. And if, if that's the approach we're going to take, then what we are accepting on some levels is that the behaviors we are seeing are the very best ones that kids have. We're defaulting the instruction of those things to people outside of us expecting that what you or I might value for our own children, everyone else should equally value. And so then that gets away from what we know is actually happening, whether it's uh, you know troubles in the home, whether it's kids coming from broken families, where, whether it's a cultural perspective, whether it's an economic perspective, whether it's uh, all those things, if we're willing to accept that they have learned it elsewhere, then we, we should just give up rushing to consequence but that's what we seem to want to do right mm -hmm. for, for me it's the same as with academics if you haven't taught it why are you expecting them to know it mm -hmm. you know so so spare me the rhetoric the myth that you know they ought to know a kid in grade nine knows they shouldn't interrupt a kid in grade nine knows how they have to eat in the lunchroom mm -hmm. so what you're telling me then is you're going to ignore the evidence you have that tom keeps calling out in class and you're hoping that he knows. Mm -hmm. So then we rush to consequence. Listen, I think between the two of us, we, we've got 50, 60 years of education. I have yet to meet a kid who got consequence to better behavior. I'm yeah, not a it, Absolutely, yeah, the, 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 the rush to, con Tom, you bring up such a good point because, you know, we, we, tend, to, we tend to always respond to the negative, but we don't necessarily focus, like if you're going to respond to the, the negative, then then what? where is the response proactively, right? The idea of the, the taking that instructional and intentional approach. Yeah, right, you know, that, that, that notion, we, we say we're built on a foundation of responsibility. 
And you know what happens, 30 kids walk into class, 29 have done all the things that we defined as being responsible, one doesn't, and who gets our attention? Right. Every time it's the one. And in that moment, we have clearly indicated to every other kid, it's not about responsibility because the thing kids want the most, you, your time, your attention, we have just given to the one kid who's behaving irresponsibly, thereby further entrenching. Look, I'm not opposed to consequence, don't get me wrong, but consequence has to be paired with instruction if we are hoping for a breakthrough. You know, if, if it were consequence alone, prisons would go out of business. And yet we know the rate of recidivism is through the roof. Why? It's the same model we took once upon a time with our behavior programs. Put the most ill-behaved kids in a room together and tell them they better improve and wonder why they don't. Right. right. We know what happens. You're in there. I'm in there. We swap our bad ideas and we commit to an amalgamation of your bad idea and my bad idea <laughs> if we ever get out of this place. It's almost it's almost like we add to the toolbox. Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. I never thought of that before. Now you've given me something more for my repertoire. You know, that's interesting. You brought up the point about, and you know, you and I both talked about this for years, but how uh, alluring adult attention is and that when we are consequencing or in that mindset of consequencing, we may be inadvertently having the reverse effect. If I've been struggling with mathematics, a foundational skill, and I've struggled with that every year, all the way going back to my entry to school, kindergarten, and now I'm a kid in grade five or grade six and we're in math time. Look, mm -hmm. I believe five years of adults who told me I suck at math, mm -hmm. but I need to have a certain cachet with my peers so guess what I'm going to focus on? Yeah. I'm going to be, you know, we're going to math. Good. I'm going to get kicked out. You think that's a consequence. I think it's a bonus. I now don't have to do math. I got you off your game. My peers think I am awesome. Yeah. You All see right. that dual, dueling reactions, right? So not only do I get to avoid math, but now my, my friends, my peers think I'm uh, hilarious. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Clowns get standing ovations. Yeah. It reminds me of, of you know, uh, the expression that, you know, time out only works when the time in environment is a positive or a desirable, right? It, that, that if you're not in an environment that you want to be in, that, you know, removing the student or what you perceive to be a consequence really ends up being a, a kind of re reinforcement or, and we're going to get to reinforcement in a moment, but I want to look at the bigger picture here because one of your many excellent books, Tom, is the book Seven Keys to a Positive Learning Environment in Your Classroom. So let's let's start with those seven keys. And, and maybe uh, what are those seven keys? And give us a quick sort of uh, summary uh, of why each of those keys is so important. I just happen to have the book here with me. Tom. Oh, do you? Okay, I, that's you know, good to know. <laughs> you know. We talk all about this whole notion of, of the seven keys. And um, you know, they, they certainly weren't meant to be that you must do them in order, but you must do them all if you're going to have that sort of functional um, classroom environment, right? And, and so it all begins with, with classroom expectations. That's key one. Mm -hmm. and, and you'll note the emphasis on the word expectations. I am not a fan of rules. We all know the old adage, rules are made to be, right, broken. We know that, right? So, so we can all think of experiences where once we establish the rule, and by the way, when do we establish the rule? After a violation. 
We don't ever want to see that again. Now think about what we could end up then doing as educators. We could create a new rule every day, right? You know what happens? You used to live in a place where they had lots more snow. So did I. The first time it snows, principal gets on the announcements. And what does the principal say? Don't, Don't. throw snow. What does every kid here? Throw snow. Throw snow. <laughs> they all come to the office. They all become schoolhouse lawyers. Yeah. I didn't throw it. I tossed it. <laughs> I kicked it at the kid. I invited the kid over to the tree. I shook the tree and the snow fell of its own free will. It was magical. I put a rock in it so it wasn't a snowball. I threw a slush ball, right? Why? Because the rule was don't throw snow. Look, we had an expectation, an expectation of respect. What did respect mean? You didn't violate anybody's personal space. You didn't cause anything that caused them to feel hurt, unwelcome, not a part of our family. I don't care how the snow got on that other kid. Were you the author of that, right? What are you supposed to remember? Respectful. I shouldn't violate their space. I shouldn't do anything that causes them to feel hurt, unwelcome, not a part of our family. So expectations are always the big kickoff, right? Then we get into targeted instruction. Once we agree on the expectations, who teaches them? Yeah. Short answer is every adult who intersects the life of that kid, mm -hmm. right? From our bus driver, through our custodian, through our front office staff, through our support staff, through the, the, the people from central office, when they come, everybody is responsible for teaching our expectations. Mm -hmm. We then get into the positive reinforcement. You know, you and I in our background, we both know at a minimum it's four positives to every negative to bring us back to balance. How do we work towards that? Mm -hmm. uh, we then get into uh, data-driven decisions, a big chunk of the work we've both done, being evidence-based. Right. Data has got to stop being a bad four-letter word in our profession. Yeah. It's become that, I think, simply because of how we use it. Uh, you know, I've often shared this notion of we've got to stop using data as a hammer, rank and sort, and start using data as a flashlight, convert to evidence. What does the evidence tell us? Uh, we talk about differentiation and enrichment as key six, right? Do we do what we need to do to ensure learning for all? It's a lovely three words that everybody says, oh, yeah, I believe in. All right, well, what are you doing for the kids that aren't there yet? That right. most important three-letter word. What are you doing for the kids who already had it before you taught? right? Differentiation, the word that's in there is different. Slower, louder is not different. It's not differentiation, it's humiliation. Right. Enrichment is not a volume proposition that we reward our best and brightest with more because then they stop being engaged. Right. And then, you know, key seven is just about collaboration. We know as strong as we have individuals in our profession, and I believe, by the way, we are blessed with the best adults ever, in education. You become infinitely smarter when you work with others. That's the strength of a team. You're a sports fanatic. I'm a sports fanatic. We know we got teams that we cheer for. They got players at certain positions that are awesome. And then they get to the playoff round and they lose. How did they lose? Well, they came up against a team, yeah. a team that was committed to each other and to the cause yeah. rather than their individual stats. So in a nutshell, that's the seven keys. Yeah. I want to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there. First, uh, I love the way you phrase the idea of a flashlight. I think the idea of database decisions uh, too often, and this is just a comment on my part, the idea that data people often see as just a spreadsheet or a, 
a graph as opposed to thinking about an expansive definition of data being good information that helps inform the decisions we make going forward. And I love the idea or that that I, that notion of the flashlight. Um, but I, I wanna sort of go back to expectations because uh, as you were talking about key, the first key, it's making me think about, um, and we're, I wanna maybe have you do a little think aloud here because we are clearly now since George Floyd and, and probably should have been sooner. Uh, but here we are where uh, racial equity, cultural responsiveness is, is at the forefront and we all need to be better at allyship. We all need to be better at what we do. So my question to you as a kind of think aloud is, is how do you see behavioral expectations uh, becoming more expansive in a school simply because if we look back, we think about what was good behavior in a school was often defined through a white Eurocentric lens. This is what it means to, to behave appropriately. And I'm recalling my conversation with Anthony Muhammad about you know, what, what, is, what, is, what different cultures accept as, as sort of their norms of behavior, if you will. So how do you see schools being able to create expectations, but also being able to take an expansive view, a culturally responsive view to what those expectations actually are? Yeah, and I think a good part of that, that you know, that cultural responsiveness is, is tied with that is this notion of cultural humility, right? Am mm -hmm. I willing to accept that I don't know everything. I know through my own lens as a 60 year old white male who mm -hmm. grew up in. Now, uh, you know, I can share, you know, that, that my, my youth was, was entirely negative, was all kinds of problems. But I still know that being white still afforded me a privilege that mm -hmm. someone in the same situation of color would not have had, right? Uh, I shuddered to think. So now when we start to talk about in, in our school, and, and the model I really like to work on, Tom, is this notion of our house, right? Welcome to our house. I, I think as educators, we've got to stop lamenting about the houses kids come from and using those largely as a way to say why they can't learn, why they right. can't progress, why they can't be on, right? So welcome to our house. Yeah. We accept the responsibility for. So now we get to our expectations. If we, and you, you know this, oftentimes people land on the same expectations of respect, responsibility, safety. Sure. Right, so what does that look like in our house? Mm -hmm. What do you bring to the table uh, from your culture? We know in, in our country in particular, we've accepted lots and lots of kids from refugee camps. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what respect looks like there? Yeah. Right? So where are we now? Where is it that we'd like to be? Do we commit to teaching? So let's say we tell kids, look, here's what respect looks like. One of the basic tenets of respect across any culture is when one person is talking, the rest of us are listening. Mm -hmm. In many cultures, when the elder talks, it is dead silent out of deference to, regardless of what they're saying, it might not even be logical, right? right. But so now here, here's how we're going to build out on respect. When one yeah. person is talking, the rest of us are listening. Yeah. If there is a violation we don't rush to consequence. We rush to teach. Right. Remember now what it looks like. Now I get it. Look, it's much easier for me to yell at you when you yell out to tell you to stop yelling <laughs> With, without recognizing the modeling I am doing, right? We've <laughs> all right. seen that school where someone is yelling at a kid to use their inside voice <laughs> and wondering why the kid is confused. Yeah. What did we teach? Now, listen, Tom, what's the expectation we have here around respect? When one person is talking, the rest of us, 
I, I get the kid might grumble it back to you, mm-hmm. right? And when you have something to share, what should you do? You should raise your hand. I know that takes more time. Good teaching takes time. Poor teaching takes even more time. Mm-hmm. It's time spent in remediation, time spent in what I call chase time, trying to put the genie back in the bottle, now mm-hmm. consequencing you and wondering why. So how do we get that cultural infusion into things like respect and responsibility? What does it look like? How do we integrate that into our schools? Mm-hmm. We know in Canada, a lot of our, uh, you know, if we are talking about race relations, come with our Indigenous communities. Yeah. Right. And, and we have done as much as we sometimes like to snub our noses and say, you guys there ought to be better at. Uh, I, I'm not proud of how we have uh, responded to our Indigenous community. I know we've got lots more work to do. And so how do we infuse some of what they bring to the table, into mm-hmm. that, that conversation, that welcoming of elders into the into the community? into the conversation. What does respect look like there? What does responsibility look like there? What does safety look like there? So that we aren't getting to what you had described earlier, that white Eurocentric view of this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my son married a, an African-American girl and, and you know, at the wedding, it was awesome to see all of this coming together of unique experience, right? Of, of exuberance represented in a bunch of different ways. The way I celebrate is not the only way to celebrate. Guess right. what, right? And, and so, you know, I, I know having just come through the Christmas season, I know it's important to me because we celebrate Christmas, mm-hmm. but I can't be so naive as to think that in our schools today, we don't just have Christmas practitioners. Right. That's not me being down on Christmas. That's not me trying to ban Christmas. Please yeah. you know, don't yeah. send me the letters. That's not what it's about. It's about recognizing that we don't just have white Eurocentric kids in the school anymore. Right. And I should honor what everybody brings to the table. It's unfortunate that that some folks will view the expansiveness of culture or cultural responsiveness as a zero sum game, that that they view it as, uh, you know, it's that expression I've heard for years, which is when you've been on top for so long, equality feels like a loss. Mm-hmm. And we really have to get ourselves out of that mindset that that as we add that that level of cultural responsiveness to our schools, we're not taking away. It's, you're not down on Christmas. You're expanding to be more inclusive and more responsive. So I, I think that's definitely something schools are already paying attention to and something that uh, I think, you know, Again, going back to Anthony's my conversation with Anthony earlier uh, in episodes two and three, uh, he said, "There's nothing wrong with white culture. It's just not the only culture," exactly. and and that's exactly the point: is that that we we don't necessarily have to to you know re- retract or or you know diminish. It's more about expansion, and it's more about being open to the fact that appropriate ways of behaving have a lot of different ways of manifesting in different cultures. And I think being open, I love that notion as well that you mentioned about humility. Uh, the idea that um, we humble ourselves with the array of diversity uh, that now exists in our schools. What One awesome, other, oh, go ahead. What an awesome learning opportunity, right? <clears throat> right. To, to be informed. You know, like you talked earlier about travel, right? Mm-hmm. When I went to Kenya for the first time, what mm-hmm. an awesome learning opportunity. Yeah. I know nothing when I get to places like that. That's right. That's when right. I get a chance to work in our indigenous communities, I know nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm open to, why wouldn't we crave that knowledge? And mm-hmm. it also ties back to some of the early stuff of Stephen Covey, 
right? Yeah. The difference between the abundance mentality and the scarcity mentality, right? right? That scarcity mentality is, is what you alluded to earlier. There's only so much. And if I have to give up some of that to those people, then I lose right. rather than saying there is enough for all of us. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to pivot also to another one of the keys that you talk about, and that's positive reinforcement. Um, you know, positive reinforcement seems to elicit polarized responses from people. You see this on social media, see this in other, other places. Uh, some believe it's important. Uh, some believe it's the very thing that undermines intrinsic motivation. Now, um, obviously for you, uh, positive reinforcement is one of the keys. So maybe uh, just spend a few minutes expanding on its importance. Why, why is positive reinforcement? And talk about some of the important aspects that ensure that positive reinforcement doesn't devolve into this sort of distribution of tangible rewards. Yeah, right, that, that, that everybody gets a trophy mentality, right? right. I, you know, and, and I wanna start with, preface my comments with this. Look, being positive doesn't guarantee a result, but being negative sure does. Mm -hmm. I know what's going to happen if I operate only from a negative mentality, mm -hmm. right? Of, of an expectation that you'll get the message when you see how stern I can become. And listen, Tom, I'm embarrassed to say that's how I started my teaching career. Yeah. I believe that I had to be louder than anybody else. I had to find the kid who was the biggest problem and put them in their place, right? Because mm -hmm. that would let everybody know. And so I did. I, you know, I had a loud voice. I still have a loud voice, right? And, and that's what I did. I used it as a weapon. When we talk about this positive reinforcement, it's not at that other extreme either of everybody gets a prize. We talk about being aware of what kids bring to the table of some of the things they've experienced. Here's what we know. If we are trying to change behavior, it takes time. University College of London study that, that looked at how long it takes to establish a new behavior range from 28 to 254 days, wow. longer than a school year. <laughs> we know we have 254 day kids coming to our schools who have experienced way beyond trauma that if we knew all the details, it would bring us to our knees uh -huh. that they have survived this. So now how do we begin then to get to building a level of respect? right? How do we begin to get to um, appropriate language? Look, when I taught severe behavior, if I was going to send home the kids every time they dropped the F-bomb, my class would have been empty by about 8.30 every morning, <laughs> right? Were they always saying it out of anger? No. Lots of times it was out of familiarity. Mm -hmm. How do I want to teach you that there's other ways? I began to record the kids, right? Hey, you know, you dropped the F-bomb three times in that last four sentences, right? No, I didn't. Well, let's listen. Now, you notice the second time you used it, you used it very descriptively. I had never heard the word used in that way. <laughs> That's right. What's a different word we might put in its place? Let's expand their vocabulary. Yeah. Right? You know, think about this for yourselves. If you went to work every day and the only thing your boss, your leader noticed was what you were doing wrong, yeah. would that help you to become better? So, you know, the four to one ratio that we talk about in the book that, that you know, is, is popular for others is this notion that that's what it takes to get us back to normal. Now, I'm not suggesting that that means we got to be overt. What I am suggesting is for you to really examine the one, right? That's where I had to start. I had to question why my negatives were coming out. 
what were they intentional to? What were they aligned with? Was I picking on only the kid who was irresponsible while telling the rest of the kids responsibility is important? Right. Once I began to focus on the one and question when it was coming out, it became easier than to say, hey, let's replace that with. Because you know that negative, it sucks up a lot more time than any of the positives, right? So we had to start to rationalize that. Then it was to intentionally notice what is going on in an authentic way. Look, my best and brightest kids did not need me to be one of eight teachers in the high school who gave them the report card can comment, a diligent and resourceful student, a pleasure to have in class. Right. Equally important for those kids to get positive, authentic feedback. Yeah. You know, the people that are, are, are sort of um, really opposed to any of this notion of positive, Alfie Cohn's one of the, 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 the leading people, so we've got to stop rewarding kids. But even Alfie will suggest that when it is that the basic needs have been met, right? Kid who doesn't know how to be respectful in school, do you think if we just rush to consequence, they'll get there? Right. Or do we have to teach them? Do we have to start to build up? Do we have to start to notice? Look, some of your listeners are going to be the good morning people, right? I hope they are that way because it's authentic. Yeah. If you're not the good morning person, please don't force it, right? Put that fake smile on. It looks creepy to the kids. Right? They wonder what's wrong with you because you got that, hey, good morning, children. <laughs> it scares them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Be true to you. Mm -hmm. Right. So now we start to build that out, that notion of being authentically positive. Right. You know what happens? It just becomes the culture, right? Kids start to pick up on that. Listen, I don't mind if you borrow my pencils. I'd appreciate if you asked me. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can I borrow your pencils? Yes. And when they return them. Isn't that what we need? Don't we need to have good civic discourse, mm -hmm. right? The events of recent times are an indicator that we don't know how to disagree. We don't know how to respect that there could be a difference of opinion. Right. A healthy society needs a range of political viewpoints, I believe. Mm -hmm. But I can't make you a, a, you know, a sworn enemy of the state because you viewed something through a different lens. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, it's interesting that that notion of noticing, and I think that's where the conflating comes, where people often think about, they hear the word reinforcement, and they imagine a teacher distributing M&Ms, or, right. you know, constantly just, just, you know, this, this thoughtless, uh, you know, distribution of tangibles, as opposed to the idea, as soon as you, if you phrase reinforcement or positive reinforcement as positive feedback, it changes its connotation, doesn't it? Um, you, uh, in, in the book you wrote, and I'm going to quote you here, if teachers believe, quote, if teachers believe in success for all students, they must not relegate the harder, deeper, more meaningful work of cultural change and relationship building to the proverbial back burner. I could not agree more with that. So let's focus on relationship building now. So we've kind of talked about the macro, the seven keys, positive reinforcement, expectations, et cetera. So let's get it down to the individual student level now. Uh, the vast majority of teachers know that building relationships is important. And I think the vast majority are striving to build positive relationships with their learners, but things can easily go sideways, right? We know that sometimes the riff in the relationship is actually sourced from the student. Uh, the student's not in the headspace or they're unwilling to, to let their guard down and find common ground with the teacher at least acutely, but often, you know, we can't control that. But teachers and principals have a lot of control over what they do and how they engage with students. So um, 
how do how do principals and teachers and, and even district leaders how, how do we uh, ensure the best possible opportunity to develop strong relationships with each and every individual student and I think I think you've touched on it in the latter part of what you just shared there Tom you know one of the things we must do as the adults is to model what we expect right if we don't model what we expect we should expect what we model the eyes are on us always so are you emotionally grounded as the adult before you begin to engage with the kid? Or do we have, even though we've called them expectations, they really are rules, mm -hmm. right? We have an expectation that school is litter free. And we walk by as adults, the paper on the floor, waiting for a kid so we can tell them to pick it up and remind them that we have an expectation of, right? So, so are you emotionally grounded before you interact with the kid? And I go back to the example earlier about raising your voice to tell kids not to raise their voice, right? You know, kids at the high school, you, you'll know this example well, um, who are trying to self-regulate. So they say it under their breath as they walk away and the adult follows them. What did you say? What did you say? Do you really think you're solving some great mystery when they turn around and tell you? And by the way, since they're going to have to tell you that word, they might as well tell you five more because they already know consequence train is coming. Right. Right. Are, are we grounded in that? Are we willing to not personalize every misbehavior? Mm -hmm. Do we recognize that sometimes kids wake up and mom and dad are in the midst of a fight and the kid is then sent to school, agitated, blames dad for the morning hullabaloo at home gets to school and it's a male teacher who just says good morning and the kid is still mad at dad that teacher is dead tells that teacher to f off yeah look you don't have to own it right you know that notion of you don't have to catch every ball thrown at you are you able to take a step back and say wow this is not normal what am i seeing now because those are the moments you will never teach a kid about respect by out disrespecting them. Right. That's when we, I'm not saying tolerate. Look, they, they, don't get me wrong. I don't think any teacher should have to put up with verbal abuse, mm -hmm. but you're not going to get there by engaging, right? This escalation doesn't produce a winner because you believe you're in the power position, right? right? The old Mark Twain analogy about never argue with a stupid person. They drag you down to their level, then beat you with experience, right? We don't have to engage, but, but we want to because we think it's about power, right? We think it's about who's in charge here and we are going to make this kid the model of and everybody else will learn. We, we're devaluing ourselves. I believe, you know, as you said at the outset, every educator is really focused on building strong, positive relationships. Right. So are you grounded not, now? And not taking it so personal. You know, yeah. Personally, it's, it's, it's so, and it's so easy to do that. It's so easy because you're there and the student has said what they've said or done what they've done. And it's really easy to take it personally. But as the adults in the, the only adults in the room, only one being paid, yeah. here we are in that situation. I, I think most teachers, the vast majority, if not all teachers are trying to build good relationships with their students, but it can easily go sideways. So um, other, other ideas, Tom, other tips, how do we build a strong relationship with students over the long haul? Yeah, you know, and, and I want your listeners to write down these eight words. I didn't say you 
had an attitude problem. Eight words. Mm-hmm. Now, as you write them down, think about how that sentence is delivered if you emphasize each of the words. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this notion of, are you conducting yourself? If I emphasize the I didn't say you had an attitude problem, it means somebody else said it. If I emphasize the didn't, it's just a straight denial. If I didn't, if I emphasize the say, maybe I wrote it down somewhere. If I emphasize <laughs> the you, it's somebody else. If I emphasize the had, it's still evident, etc. Right. So are we thinking about the message we're delivering? Is Mm -hmm. that message then consistent with what we've said are the overarching expectations? Mm -hmm. Are we as the adults now living those expectations? Please don't put anything on a wall or in a handbook that you as the adults are not prepared to model. Mm -hmm. And then we commit. So go back to my example of the good morning. And this kid never lifts his head and says good morning back. Right? They just shuffle their feet with their head down and they go past. I need you as the adult to notice that moment because yeah. it will happen. Even with 254 day kid, there will come a time where you will hear an almost inaudible grunt. Choose to believe that is the start of the turn. Choose to believe it was good morning. Celebrate the heck out of that. And the last, last part of this is, and we've got to be committed as a team. Look, 254-day kid is going to wear me out if I am trying to take that on individually. The single biggest cause of burnout, I think, in our profession is people thinking they have to go it alone. I need the team. I need to be able to tag off to my partner, Tom, who's going to take the next 30-day run at this kid. And we are going to, did you see anything yet? No, me neither. And we may have to bring in a third colleague or a fourth colleague. We may have to involve our school-based leadership, our school-based counseling support. But we are committed because this is one of our kids in our house that we are going to turn this around. And I've been in schools where they are celebrating that they finally got 254 day kid. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that I didn't say you have an attitude problem reminds me that that so much of what we communicate is not in the words we say, uh, but in the, the paralanguage in the body language and all the tone, everything that, that surrounds it, it reminds me of, something I often say to people, like how, how many of us have ever had a significant other, other utter the words, I'm fine, and you knew they weren't fine, right? So the words we say are, are not often um, uh, the, the true communication uh, that, that we experience. Okay, let's finish up this part around school culture with this question, because I want, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit to school leaders. I know a lot of the listeners uh, to the podcast are principals, assistant principals, district level leaders. So what are some of the key messages you give to principals, assistant principals, et cetera, about how to go about prioritizing student behavior and student culture or school culture, I should say, like where should they begin? Or if they're going to re-examine what's happening already, they've, they've tried some things, maybe things went you know, off track, uh, how they've lost their way, where, where should they begin? Or what are some of the key things that leaders need to think about when it comes to student behavior? And, and, you know, the first, the first part is to accept that this is a journey, right? It's not a checklist. Um, you're not going to get be- better at this overnight. Uh, so, so is it part of your core? Is it part of your purpose? When you talk about creating a positive learning environment, are you thinking currently of the kids who challenge that the most? Because mm-hmm. we know this, right? The kids who challenge us the most, they actually need us the most. 
Right? We also know they show up to school every day and that just drives us batty. We'd love for them to catch the latest cold just so we could get a break from them. Right? <laughs> so this notion that we've got to be thinking about our commitment. Are we saying we want a positive learning environment? All right, what does that look like? Are you as the leader then prepared to nurture and grow your team? You know, I, I think when I became a principal, I had to remember I never stopped being a teacher. My kids were a little bit bigger, right? My staff, my faculty, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but I think the range of abilities and ability to get to, we had to be willing to teach. It's a mistaken notion that uh, a university degree in education prepares you to be a classroom teacher. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there's any other profession where the disconnect is as big as it is in our profession between for the university response, the college response, making your 17 part lesson plan and getting to a class and never having a 17 part lesson plan because reality sinks in. Right. So what are your expectations around that? What have you built in then as opportunities to develop the skill set of your teachers? And then there's the context piece, right? You and I have both coached. You know, when you are coaching an elite level athlete, you can have different expectations. You can actually have a different tone of voice. When I was coaching a, you know, a, a volleyball team that ended up winning the, the provincial title, the equivalent of a state championship, I could ask those boys to do something different in practice than the, hey, here's our first time ever seeing volleyball group of kids, right? So we had to contextualize the instruction. Leaders in the myriad of things they need to do also need to be able to be a part of the dialogue. I know you can't be in every school meeting every time, but you've got to be in enough of the conversation around creating positive school culture that you can ask the value added questions that you can take it a little bit deeper, that you know something about little Tommy in fourth grade and a bit of the background that you can contribute to the conversation, right? That when you have a teacher who has more referrals to the office than any other, you're not ranking and sorting that teacher. You're going and talking with that teacher and saying, so how can we help? What are some of the things that are going on? Because others who have the same group of kids are not experiencing it. I'm willing to look, maybe it's because you get the kids after lunch every day. That may be a factor. Maybe it's the content piece. I, I'm willing to accept that. Maybe, but, but we've got to have the conversations, right? I think as a high quality leader in, and even as a high quality educator, you need to have two characteristics, courage to force up the tough issues and vulnerability to accept that there may be a different path, a different response we can take in this situation with this kid, with this colleague. I love that. I love the idea. It almost it it, it seems to be an apparent like a, a dichotomy, but this, but it's not right. No. It's the courage and the vulnerability. I, I think that's uh, that's a great point, Tom. Uh, it, Tom, listen, this is this has been fantastic. Uh, as you know, that's the bulk of the, of the interview, but I always end the interviews with a little bit of fun. I want to give people a chance to get to know you a little bit. Uh, so we're going to finish with a segment that I've kind of rebranded. It used to be five questions, but we're just going to uh, keep it to three questions. So we'll I think we'll you've also rebranded this as the most fearful part of the interview. <laughs> I like to scare people as to what is he going to ask me uh, on this last part. But uh like I said, it's a chance to uh, for listeners to get to know you a little bit on a, a more personal level, nothing too intrusive, just some fun questions. So here's the first question. 
what's the one thing that's not work-related, can't be work-related? What is the one thing that you love to do that you never seem to have enough time for? That's a very good question. I, I you know, I, I love um, getting to sporting events and, and I still have on my list you know, to get to a, a high level college football game, mm. right? Get to a high level, uh, you know, some of the American sports, right? That, that yeah. we don't get to see at the same thing here in Canada. So, you know, if, if I had more time, I'd love to just take, um, you know, a two week trip to a tour of the big cities and watch the big events. I'm a big yeah. hockey fan. I'd love to go on the original six tour and mm. visit those, right? So, so, so that would be something I think that would be really appealing. Yeah. So, for listeners, you don't know, uh, Tom lives on the west coast of Canada, but is a massive Montreal Canadiens fan. And uh, so this is where Tom and I uh, take divergent paths as a diehard Vancouver Canucks fans. His team has had a lot more success than, than the Canucks. And I know Tom cheers for the Canucks when it's not the Montreal Canadiens. So, okay. Uh, question two, what uh, band or type of music are most people surprised that you listen to or you or that you like to listen to? Like what what music kind of surprises people? They go, wow, I didn't know. I didn't think you would like that type of music. So this will date me because uh, it's the era I grew in. But, you know, I'm a, a big Freddie Mercury fan and Queen fan. And in fact, that is my ticket to uh, to my longest standing relationship with my wife and I coming up on our 40th anniversary. Um, my ticket to success was to get her a ticket to the Queen concert. Uh, once I did that, she was able to see past all of my very obvious faults because <laughs> clearly I had something there. So, you know, if you catch me, uh, you know, imitating a Freddie Mercury falsetto, that might yeah. throw a few people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, Freddie Mercury uh, for me is, uh, and I talked a little bit about this, I think with Bill Ferreter, about the, the, the number one front man of all time. And for me, it begins and ends with Freddie Mercury uh, as, as the, the, the number one lead singer or front man. So that's interesting. And, and certainly you associating yourself with Freddie Mercury gave your wife a chance to see past all of those flaws. <laughs> okay, last question, Tom. And, and take your time on this. Uh, if you had the power to invent a holiday, that one that we don't currently have, what would it be and when would it occur? Yeah, that's a, what would it be? <laughs> well, I, and, and again, I'll take it from a very selfish mode. Um, I, I think we ought to have a national fishing day where I could just get out on a boat um, <laughs> with, you know, the, the appropriate liquid beverages in the place where there was guaranteed catch. And, and I got to tell you, I wouldn't even know that the day went by because when I'm out on a boat catching fish, the hours would just fly by. In mm -hmm. fact, I think we, you know, rather than just a day, we should make it a weekend, okay. maybe a national weekend holiday, because I don't think there's such a thing as a national weekend holiday. So if we're going to have the ability to create, let's go all in. Absolutely. Right. And, and uh, I think we can guarantee the beverages, but I'm not sure we can guarantee the catching, no. uh, but absolutely uh, uh, a fishing holiday. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Even though I don't fish, uh, I'll go along for the ride. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tom, as you know, I, I finish up every interview with the same question with uh, all guests. And as what I'm trying to do with the podcast a little bit long-term is thinking about success and happiness and where people find that in their lives, how they define it. So as you've heard me ask many guests before, 
uh, I want to finish up with this question. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How, how would you answer them? Give that some thought. You know, I think the, the, the first thing for me when I think about success is, is I wake up every morning without dread about what I get to do, right? The, the work I get to do, the relationships I have, the connections. You know, I, every morning when I wake up is, is just I'm looking forward to the day, right? I don't have that. The second part of that is, you know, for success, I, I want to be the person my grandbabies think I am. Right? You know what it's like when, uh, no, no matter what happens for them, I'm just grandpa. That, that is the thing. They don't know if I've written 17 books or if I've written 17 sentences. That doesn't matter. Right? They look at me. And so I want to be the person they think I am. That, that to me would be the ultimate definition of success. I absolutely love that. That, that is such a, that, that creates such a clear perspective and grounding on, I want to be the person my grandkids think I am. That, that's, I, I think, a fantastic way to finish up today. Uh, Tom, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join me today. Listeners really would encourage you to follow Tom on Twitter. Uh, Tom has a great uh, Twitter feed, uh, lots of great content, lots of deep thinking around education on a number of different topics. His Twitter handle is at T Hirk. Uh, so that's, that's the Twitter handle. And I would also encourage you to spend a bit of time on Tom's website, www.tomherrick.com. Uh, you'll see Tom's uh, publications. You'll see Tom's blogs. Uh, Tom also blogs at the allthingsassessment.info website that I've mentioned uh, in previous episodes with Cassandra and Nicole and Katie White, et cetera. Uh, but Tom has his own blog spot as well that you can find a lot of content there uh, for Tom. And uh, you can also find Tom on LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, just search search Tom's name, Tom Hirk on LinkedIn and Facebook. So I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, you, you won't be sorry to follow Tom and, and uh, especially the Twitter feed. I think there's some really great content there. So Tom, thanks again for being here and I look forward to next time. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address a question that's come up a couple times this week um, about grading. Now, grading is obviously a hot topic, and I see and hear a lot of conversations about grading. So just this past week, uh, the conversation came up a couple of times on two different Zoom calls that I was facilitating, and the question sort of centered around, can we get rid of grading altogether? And that question always requires a qualifier. And the question would be like, what do you mean by grading? Uh, do you mean, can we eliminate the need for teachers to examine student demonstrations of learning? Uh, do you mean, can we eliminate putting a score or a level on every piece of evidence the students produce? Uh, do you mean, can we eliminate summative assessment altogether? Uh, do you mean, can we eliminate report cards? Uh, you know, again, like it, it requires a qualifier because in so many places, the word grading is used to refer to several different actions or several, several different processes. So you really do need to know and clarify what you mean. And this is where, again, and it seems to be a pattern for me railing against social media, but you really can't just throw things out there like, let's get rid of grades. Well, or let's get rid of grading because there are things we have to consider. So for example, like in Canada, we often refer to uh, marking as or marks as 
we describe what we do with individual student demonstrations, while the term grade is used to describe more the holistic process of determining what goes on a report card. That those different you know terms are used to kind of make distinctions between the actions, and and often when you keep using the word grading as in report card grades or grading papers, they are two different actions and do require some distinction. So when that word is used kind of universally to describe everything around assessment, then you really do need those qualifiers, right? So to address this, I often ask when people say, can we eliminate grades? I'll often ask the question, uh, do you mean grades or grading the noun or grades or grading the verb? Okay, because that distinction is really important. So let's start with the noun. So can we eliminate the things that are grades, the symbols? Well, sure, of course we can. Uh, the symbols or descriptors we use are completely negotiable. Um, you know, letters, numbers, symbols, descriptors, they're all plausible ways to indicate or synthesize the degree to which a student has learned. And I'm not necessarily saying that they are the mo most thorough or the most complete, but there is some legitimacy. I, I do find it interesting when people just sort of automatically say, well, grades are arbitrary. I sure hope not, because I sure hope that the grades you're determining are based upon some well-established transparent criteria. I know it sounds you know, good on, on Twitter to say grades are arbitrary, but if they're arbitrary, that's the adults doing that. That's not the existence of five letters of the alphabet. What's happening is that the adults have disassociated the letters of the alphabet from the established criteria and therefore they become arbitrary but somehow we try to escape responsibility for the fact that grades have become disassociated with learning and that really is the adults doing that uh, so they're not arbitrary at least they shouldn't be arbitrary and if they are arbitrary then we're talking about an implementation error so symbols descriptors all of that can be negotiable and can you eliminate them and go to more of a narrative? Sure, of course you can. Obviously, there there might be outside forces, uh, you know, university applications, things like that, that require certain formats. But again, university transcript requirements are actually a lot looser than some might imagine. Most universities accept students or have at least the potential to accept students from around the world. So they get transcripts in all shapes and sizes. So the flexibility is much greater than one might imagine. And we have to, I think, in some respects, make sure that the transcript or the, the levels of performance are accessible, which is why in the description of the school and an explanation of the grading system, uh, that's usually where we try to describe that in the transcript so that the, the university um, admissions officers can kind of interpret what the transcript is all about. So it's all possible. Okay, as far as the noun is concerned, uh, that's all doable. But let's talk about grading the verb. Okay, that's a different story. Okay, now sometimes I say to people, look, if you get rid of grades, you're going to have to replace them with grades. <laughs> okay, summative assessment is going nowhere. All right, because using assessment for the summative purpose is a necessary part of our job. Now, I know when most people say let's eliminate summative assessment, they're usually thinking about the nouns. They're thinking about final exams or standardized tests. They're thinking about summatives in a way. And again, we have to remind ourselves that the distinction between formative and summative assessment is in how you use the elicited information. It's not what you label it. Labeling something formative does not make it so. And you've heard me say this before. 
assessments are only formative when they are used formatively, right? So just the label itself, you call something formative, but use it summatively. It's a summative assessment. It's a summative moment. So the idea of the verb really sort of boils down to the idea of examining evidence of learning and making a determination of the degree to which the student has met the learning goals. Could we do less of that and emphasize more feedback and absence of scores, grades, levels? Of course. I mean, that's not a new assertion in 2021. We're, we've been talking about feedback for a long time and the importance and, and why sometimes grades and scores can interfere with a student's willingness to keep learning. And you've, you've heard me say that as well. But can we eliminate that altogether? Probably not, because education, especially public education, is not just an insular exercise. All stakeholders, right, starting with families, but not ending there, have a right to know this information. Governments that fund the systems, the taxpayers that fund the system, as well as outside agencies, I think can have some reasonable expectation of efficiently knowing the degree to which students have been successful and whether or not the system is serving the purpose that it was designed to serve. So the idea of summarizing learning will never leave us. Now, what format that comes in totally open and can probably and probably should evolve. But at the same time, it's not going to be eliminated. I just, there, there's not a scenario that I see where we won't have the responsibility of summarizing the degree to which a student has learned and letting other people know about that, especially. Uh, but, but I think even in private education, you would still have that responsibility uh, to those paying tuition. So, you know, more thorough reporting might be more effective, but it actually may tip the scales and not be as efficient. So my mindset has always been trying to balance both. How do we create a, an effective and efficient system of reporting? So eliminate nouns, sure. Eliminate the verb, the action, the idea of assessing student performance. I don't think that's going anywhere. Now, many talk about portfolios as being a, a more thorough way of demonstrating. And I have no argument against that point. My only point with portfolios is often when we talk about portfolios, we don't think about the practical application of the portfolio. So I've heard many people talk about portfolios in the sense that, you know, when students graduate, what if they had a portfolio instead of a transcript that just had a bunch of grades on it? What if the students had a, a portfolio of evidence that they used as part of their university application? Okay, sure. Let's, let's, Let's talk about portfolio from a practical perspective. I want you to understand clearly, I am making zero argument against the idea of a portfolio, okay? Conceptually, the idea of gathering evidence, the only argument I would make with portfolios is make sure that you're clear on what purpose you want the portfolio to serve. Because sometimes uh, folks will say, well, we want this portfolio to be an assessment portfolio. And then really what it becomes is show and tell. It becomes just a gathering of, of uh, pretty little things that go into the into the portfolio. So for portfolios to be effective, we have to understand, is it a growth portfolio? Like, am I showing evidence over time that shows my growth? It, is it an assessment portfolio where I show um, evidence of certain, you know, standards and outcomes? Like, again, be clear on the purpose of the portfolio. Uh, just doing a portfolio, again, doesn't necessarily mean that it's an effective way to communicate. All right, so here's the example. UCLA. In the United States, UCLA is the school that receives the most university applications of any school in the United States. UCLA in 2017-18 received 
over 100,000 applications, okay? So let's talk portfolio here. Let's just eliminate 50,000 of those applications and just say they weren't even being considered, okay? So 50,000. Now, I don't know how you would eliminate them without any kind of summary or any kind of synthesis, but let's just for argument's sake, we eliminate 50,000 of those and we're left with 50,000 portfolios that, that UCLA has to consume. Now, my quick math on this, I could be wrong, uh, but let me, let me run some quick math on this. 50,000 portfolios, let's give each person 15 minutes to consume the portfolio. That means it's going to take 12,500 hours to consume those 50,000 portfolios. Now, if we count breaks and fatigue, uh, something like that, let's just operate off a seven hour workday, okay? Given the fact that if it's an eight hour workday, there's fatigue and all of that, right? So if that's true, if there's a seven hour workday, Okay, you would need the equivalent of 1,785 days to consume those portfolios. That means 10 people could do it in 178 days. 100 people could do it in 17 days. 17 days, 100 people. UCLA is going to hire 100 people to spend close to three weeks consuming application portfolios. That's not going to happen. And we're only dealing with half of the applications here. So you see where this is going, right? This is, this is you know, there's, there's one thing to talk conceptual. Is a portfolio a more thorough way of showing a student's growth or showing their, their um, evidence of learning and all of that? Absolutely. There's no argument for me on that. But at some point, these ideas in the abstract, we have to think about them from a practical perspective. So uh, the point I'm trying to make is that when talking about grading, um, again, as I said, if you get rid of grades, you're probably going to have to replace them with grades because the idea of synthesis and summarizing is likely not to leave us because at some point we have to have an efficient way to communicate to all stakeholders the degree to which students have met the prescribed learning outcomes or the expectations of the class. Um, again, be clear on terminology. When you're talking about grading, are you talking about the symbols? Are you talking about the action? What are we talking about here? And make sure that we're clear on terminology. You know, you wanna get rid of grades, the noun, the symbols, and you wanna change those and, and change those over? No problem with that, absolutely, okay? Let's talk about that, let's dig deep into that. But grading the verb, well, that's probably here to stay in some way, shape, or form. That's all we have for today. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates at Tom Shimmer Pod, as well as my personal Twitter handle. That's at Tom Shimmer. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner, as well as any other suggestions for the podcast. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel, as I mentioned in the opening. I'm looking to add some new features to that, new segments in 2021. And really, the video versions of the interviews are excellent uses for uh, PD, so check those out as well. Next week, my guest will be none other than Rick Warmly. I'm excited to have Rick on the podcast, so you don't want to miss that. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. That seems to be the place where your ratings and subscriptions uh, go a long way to expanding the listening audience. And of course, if you're up for it, please spread the word about the podcast to some of your colleagues or your friends through social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 